He played Karakan. His rating was higher. But from move seventeen, the king's side was mine. Took my chances fast. My rook was a knife, and my almighty queen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ladies' Night, the official podcast of U.S. Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Chahadi, and you are listening to the artist Huga of HugaMusica.com, and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh, Capablanca! His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast for your shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. He has more experience, but I won't lose again. Welcome back to Ladies' Night. I am so excited today um, to have an old student from chess, really, or at least I taught a couple workshops where she participated in. Yeah. Linda Diaz. She is a singer, songwriter. She's an Oberlin grad, former scholastic chess champion. She's also been featured recently in musical breaks of our U.S. Chess Women Botas Live fundraisers on Twitch with some of her songs such as Magic, which you're going to hear a little bit of later, and Green Tea Ice Cream. And of course, you can find all of these on her YouTube channel, Linda Diaz Music. Um, one exciting thing is Linda's music is starting to pick up on the mainstream. She was quoted in NPR in a playlist featuring Black artists that Black Joy is radical. NPR also described her music as springtime bliss, eliciting visions of sticky cotton cannon clouds, pastel chalk on sunny sidewalks, and ooey gooey lovey dovey moments. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, um, Linda is also featured in July's issue of Chess Life magazine in the Bi- My Best Move series, which may not be mainstream yet, but the way chess is booming recently, who knows? Thanks, Linda, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So uh, my memories of you are as like a scholastic chess champion. Can you tell us a little bit about your chess career? Yeah. Okay. So I started playing chess when I was six. Uh, I'm from New York City, so chess was taught as a uh, class, like a mandatory class in my school, which was becoming more commonplace in New York um, in the early 2000s, which was when I was in kindergarten. Um, so I started really young. I had a good temperament for the game, which I think is what's important when you're younger, um, just like being able to sit and focus and obviously having an interest in it. But I was the worst chess player on my team for like four years. <laughs> um, so you were the worst. You were the worst chess player on your team, but you were pretty strong. Yeah, you're. You were like a two thousand player, a U.S. chess expert. Eventually, yes. Eventually, I got there. Um, but for the first couple of years of my chess career, I was like the lowest player on my team, and then I kind of hit a break. I think there is a time for um, most young chess players where things would start kind of clicking. Um, and for me, that was fourth grade. So I won cities, and I got second in states, and I won super nationals all in a row, like in my section. Um, and that kind of like launched my career as I knew it. I got invited to all these invitational chess camps. Um, 
And I started taking tests a lot more seriously too, like doing all my after school. I had a coach. Um, so then I continued to play through high school. I played a little bit in college too, but my peak was like my junior year of high school. Um, and yeah, I loved it. I, tra- I got to travel the world. I got to travel all over the United States. Um, I got to be in Susan Fulgar's test camps and Western Invitational test camps. Um, so yeah, it was an illustrious career and not, I'm not, I don't consider myself like still in my chess career, but I do still love chess and I do still play sometimes. So That's great. I'm, I want to go back to you being the worst player in your chess team for a long <laughs> yeah. time because, you know, actually I relate to that. Um, I've told this story before, but not all the, not that often. Some people still don't know it, but I was very um, late bloomer when it comes to chess in that mm-hmm. I was like 1400 when my brother already reached national master and he's only two years older than me. So um, I kind of didn't feel like I was very talented at the game, but then I had a dramatic um, growth at some point, similar to what you describe. And I think that's important Mm -hmm. because everybody's learning curve is very different. Yes, totally. And so how did you kind of keep up like the motivation to play, even though you weren't um, improving quickly? Um, I think it's just what you value in the game. I was lucky to have um, a good support team around me. And so I think more than winning and more than rating points, they really valued like your, your dedication to the game, your interest in it, like number one, but also like your ability to focus, your ability to understand tactics um, and your growth as a player. I think even though I wasn't making that big leap quite yet, it was obvious to my coaches that I was, learning a lot and so sometimes I think it as you're saying it takes you a long time to apply everything all at once together um but I think just being able to see that growth in different areas and like valuing that even if it's not necessarily like one for one with your rating because I think as I got older too like as I got better at chess and I was considered a successful chess player it was still a similar concept just you know it's harder to gain rating points the higher you get um and so you really do have to value things beyond just your rating when you want to get better. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that there's certainly some some ways for people to kind of compete against themselves in chess rather than yeah. only being your rating. Um, wh- where did you go to school in New York? I went to Columbia Grammar and Prep for 13 years. So the whole time. <laughs> that's what I thought. Okay. And that's yeah. um, that because you, you mentioned in your Chess Life Magazine article um. Sophia Road, International mm-hmm. Arbiter, and as well as John MacArthur. So they're both involved in that program. Sophia yeah. runs it and John is a coach, right? Yeah. And Joel Benjamin also was a coach when I was there. I think he's still coaching there. Yes, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So and and Michael Road too, I believe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 The so whole crew. They're still around. Yes. They're yeah. still doing still doing good work. <laughs> so um can you tell me what your happiest memory is from Jess? Oh, wow. I think that Super Nationals was always my favorite. Um, and they all kind of blend together for me now. But I had this, like, my little crew of chess girls. Um, and it was primarily Emily Tallow and Rochelle Ballantine. Those were, like, my two best friends growing up playing chess. Um, and they're also very successful chess players in their own right. Um, but we got to go to Disney World every year. Uh, and, like, but when we were older teenagers, it was fun because we got to, like, walk around by ourselves and like explore Disneyland and go to Universal Studios and be in the pool. So I think like having social time among my peers and also all of us like being good enough at the game that we know how to prioritize, like when to study, you know, like having people in your corner that are in the same 
situation in you um was cool because at high school I was like the only high school player aside from Mark Arnold who was a lot older than me so he graduated earlier um I didn't have other people in my high school who were like doing what I was doing so it was always cool to like be around other chess players who were my age right yeah and Rochelle also lives lived in New York um yeah she she came back actually right yeah yeah so so Rochelle Ballantyne is pre-shirt on Brooklyn Castle. And then Emily Talio, is, wasn't she from a different part of the country, Emily? Yeah. So Emily Talio is from Indiana. Um, and now I believe she's living in Chicago because she's pursuing another degree. They're both like super duper academic parties. And I'm so excited for both of them. Um, Rochelle's going to be a lawyer, I think, still. Um, and I think Emily's going to work in international policy, but obviously those things kind of shift and change as we get older. Um, but yeah, both of them, I have kept in close touch with both of them. So Rochelle's back in New York now. Emily and I visited each other when we studied abroad. We talk often, so it's nice. Yeah, it seems like you've all become very successful and you were all probably around the same rating level, right? Like 2,100, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Rochelle, I think, was the highest of all of us and she kind of stuck with it a little bit longer too. Um, but yeah, we were all around like 2000 and I think Emily might have gone a little bit higher and then maybe Rochelle was like 21 something, 2200. I can't really remember now. Yeah, she was close to 2200. I do remember that. And yeah. I think it's interesting that you kind of mentioned is the happiest memory, like the social aspect, because, you know, people might emphasize that specifically with girls, but I actually think it's universal, like even among the very best players in the world, like Magnus Carlsen and Levan Aronia. And, you know, like when they go to the Sinkfield Cup, it's like there's all these like after parties. Like it really. Exactly. Totally. It really does seem like at some point in every chess player's career, like bug house after parties, it's like there's this desire to like be better than your friends, but also to have fun with them. Yeah. It's no matter how serious you are about the game and you guys are really serious, it's it's the the social aspect that can't be overlooked. And I think it's interesting that you're too best friends, as you describe in chess, were also girls, because if you don't have that network, a lot of times people drop out of the game. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's definitely, I mean, the social aspect was both something that I cherished and something that made it difficult for me because there were so few women, not that I could only relate to women, but I think like being in that position, being one of the only women, being one of the only girls of color playing chess, um, was it's just difficult for any kid growing up to be doing something where nobody looks like them. I think that's that's like representation is always important and having um people around you that are saying like I did this you can do this you know um I think even if it's not verbal it's just looking into a sea of a bunch of boys it's kind of just like verifies your beliefs on like what success looks like even if it's not somebody saying that to you um so I think like in many times in my chess career both being a woman was an empowering thing and having my girlfriends was like super important um, but also I think like the social aspect did work against me in so many ways. And I did have to keep reminding myself, like I belong here and I'm good enough and I'm better than good enough, honestly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, women are a huge part of my chess career. Um, but I definitely have like a lot of guy friends that I'm still friends with from chess because that was the majority of people like on my teams and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it looks like in chess, we've done a lot to 
kind of encourage women and girls in the game. And like in the last few years, we're doing even more. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned also being one of the few uh, females of color in the game. And yeah, I know that you've been really vocal about anti-racism on your social media networks. And I was wondering your thoughts on mm-hmm. what chess can do better, not just to not be racist, but also to be anti-racist. Yeah. Well, I think Rochelle and I talk about this a lot. I know that she's actually done some of this work. I haven't really had the same, I guess I just haven't done it yet. Um, and I think it's, I think she grew up in testing schools, which is a test program that is primarily in public schools in New York City and mostly in boroughs that are not Manhattan, although some in Manhattan, I think now where we are working with students of color who are playing chess. And I think it's just kind of like, shifting gears in that way and being like, okay, we're in these schools, but we're not necessarily doing this work. Like we're not necessarily considering the race of the students in and their experiences in their experience in the chess world. So I think like when I was growing up um, and playing chess and like being a woman in chess, even a lot of the rhetoric was, it doesn't matter if you're a woman, you're all the same. And I think something that is important is like, no, you are a woman and that makes you different than the majority of people playing this game and that also makes you unique gives you like a unique edge number one um but like that should be celebrated you know and so i think that is like the number one place to start is just like recognizing that there isn't especially in the u.s i guess there aren't a lot of mentors to look up to who are like women of color for young women of color or even people of color for young people of color playing chess uh, and being like, we recognize that, um, intentionally seeking out those people that do exist and being like, hey, would you be interested in teaching this class? Would you be interested in talking to this class? Um, and then just acknowledging that with your students, even if nobody teaching the class is a person of color, I still think that there's there's an opportunity to say, hey, we, we realize your experience is different. Um, and yeah, that's, that's just like an important place to start for me. <laughs> Yeah, it's realize that difference in experience and, um, you know, get a, get away from like the, the more hokey language that everybody is the same in chess. Is that, is that kind of? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, totally. And what about the actual experience at the chess tournaments and the events? Is there something that you feel like can be done or like, done better, like beyond like the, the schools and hiring more people of color and be more sensitive to the experiences? Yeah, I think I touched on this a little bit um, and it's a little while ago, but not super clearly. I think that there are, I think that, I mean, we live in America. The majority of people in America are white. Um, and so I think like even, I mean, not in in the total pie, but as opposed to like black people and then Latin people and white people, white people are the majority. So I think even if this weren't a scenario, like even living in New York, there are times where I walk outside and everybody around me is white. Um, and so I think just in terms of chess, tournaments I think it's not necessarily something that you can control on a grand level but there are students and there are professionals who are people of color who are very successful so I think instead of instead of having to make or instead of looking to make a student of color become successful I think just look for those students of color who are already successful and bring them into the conversation that's number one because I think sometimes people just fail to look for the people that are already there um in ter- like in terms of a tournament experience, even just like being a mentor. Like I used to go back to um, the younger kids in my school as a high school chess player. And I would like sit in the game room and just go over the games with them. And it wasn't necessarily like, oh, I'm this woman here to go over the games of the girls. You know, I was just like another person there. Um, and if, and just like showing that representation, that was really important. So I think like mentorship, 
in terms of the experience. Um, I think like looking at chess in other countries, because I think being international is also an important part of the conversation and just saying like there are different, there are just different people are just different all over the world um, and they're all successful. I think that's part of it too, because sometimes chess can be an insular conversation in the U.S. and it's it, the chess in the U.S. didn't become big until pretty recently in terms of the timeline of chess. So I think just like having that recognition too, I didn't realize that the U.S. wasn't the epicenter of chess or whatever until I started traveling internationally. Um, and I don't know. I think like, I think also just in the way that you're teaching and the way, I just think it's like an, as a mentor and as a teacher, it's really important to not assume things of your students too. Like, I think, yes, be aware of their individual experiences, but don't assume that somebody is feeling like they can't do it. Like, a lot of people when I was growing up, um, especially because I went to a private school and I came from, like, a much lower socioeconomic background. I was a woman. I was a color. People kind of assumed that I thought that I wasn't good enough, and that made me feel like I wasn't good enough. Um, and I think the mentors that I really appreciated were the people that were just kind of like, you can do this. We see this in you, and we're, we're we want you to be successful and we know that you can't be. Um, so I think just like flipping the way that you look at the language. Yeah, that's a great advice. I mean, you've heard of the stereotype threat, I'm sure, where like if you tell people that um, they're female and therefore they're less likely to score high on math and chess, mm-hmm. um, whether that's true or not, just like if you tell them there's like some study that suggests that or blah, blah, blah. Even if you don't agree with the study, just having that like seed planted. Yeah. Um, if you then give them like a test on chess or math or something right after that, they do worse than if you hadn't mentioned it. Totally. Yeah. And that's super real. I mean, I had that experience so many times. I actually used to be really great at math. Growing up, it was my favorite subject. And around high school, I got exponentially worse. And I look back on that now as an adult. And so much of that had to do with the way that people were even discouraged me when I was bad at one thing, which I think is another big thing in chess. Like I think women are assumed not to be very, um, what's the word? Like, um, like tactical chess players, I guess, uh, or aggressive chess players. I was a really aggressive chess player. Um, and people would kind of tell me that women weren't or like assumed that I wasn't. And so I kind of got it into my head that it was a bad way to be. And I would fight my natural instincts as a player. And I think it told me back, especially early on, um, from being the best player that I could be. Yeah. I mean, in chess, you really need to be in the zone and not thinking about like things that people might think about you or negativity. Like even beyond being female, there were some psychologists. I, I read this book called Scarcity where these psychologists had this great experiment where they like went to a mall and they asked people about their car repair. So first they started by saying like something bad happened to your car. Um, I'm t- I don't even own a car. So th- the, the way that I'm describing <laughs> this probably okay. sounds, sounds really inane. Sorry, but this is what they did. And like the first amount was like very small, like something like 50 bucks. Um, and so they, they found out what income the people they talked to were and the $50 range was usually okay um, because for people. And then they gave them a cognitive test right after that. So they said, okay, you need to do a car repair for 50 bucks. Here's a cognitive test. And people of all income levels did pretty similar on the test. 
Mm-hmm. Then they tried it again and it was like a very large number, like $2,000. Mm-hmm. Now, the lower your income level was, even though this was just a pure hypothetical, Linda, it wasn't like an actual thing that happened to their car. Mm-hmm. It was purely like hypothetical, like if this happened, you know, what would you do? Mm-hmm. So they primed people with that and then they gave them like different like cognitive tests. And the lower income interviewees did way worse after they were told something happened to their car that might cost them $2,000. So it's just like another version of the stereotype threat. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so, and I think like as a child, just to remember like people of all ages, but children are so, so um, malleable and like so vulnerable at that age. I don't know. I always get so nervous like around kids now, even going back with tests, like I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to do the wrong thing. But I think like, having an unconditional like unwavering belief in their success and like investing in children is the best. It's like raising a kid, you know, it's the best thing that you can do is just like really, truly. I think that's kind of where a lot of coaches try and try and be like, okay, you're all the same. And I think it's just a a mesh of the two, you know, like we all have different experiences. Also like children are living in the real world. And so like, I, like, you know, I had experiences where I thought I couldn't afford to do things. And then a lot of the parents in my school, band together and paid for me to go to chess camp or like paid for me to go to a tournament. And I never knew that that happened until I was an adult because like that was not a problem that I should have to think about. Um, and I was lucky enough to have people around me that were invested in my success, but also like invested in my well-being. Um, and so, yeah, I think that I think just like, I think showing up and being like, okay, I believe in your success, but I also think like monetarily, um, and through your statements, you're like, USCF is a big organization, like make a statement and be like, Hey, we support, we support all people of color, but we support child players of color, you know, like, and, and the same thing with like low income students, the same thing with women. I think one of the biggest things for me that made a, a switch for me, I guess, was like those, like the pole bar tournaments and like the USCF specifically being like, and Kasara, you know, coming out and being like, I support women in chess and like we recognize this history and like, you're not crazy for feeling like you have extra stuff against you because you the history and yes, you do. Um, so I think like making those public statements and like not having it, not treating it like an issue or not treating those people like it's like their fault, you know, and kind of just being like, we as an organization need to do better and how can we support you is like huge, huge. <laughs> just listening indeed. And in the July issue of Chess Life magazine, you wrote that, There's a lot of talk about what all-girls chess tournaments can mean, but for me, they were intentional spaces that fostered support and solidarity among girls at a critical time in our development when we were building our confidence and our identities. Yeah. Very nice. I mean, I I agree with that. I do think that girls' tournaments seem to be fun. To me, it's like a supply and demand thing. Girls and women seem to have a lot of good time, really good time at it. So I really try to flip the script and think about the people who are playing in them not about this um, script that's sometimes imposed on us that it means we think we're weaker than boys. Totally. I think the pole bar was really cool for me because I went a lot of years in a row. And so sometimes we'd have some, you know, like there'd be an event and people wouldn't want to go. And so she'd give us surveys and or she'd ask us in person and she'd be like, hey, why don't you kind of this thing? Or like, what would you guys want to see? What would you guys like to do? And um, even sometimes in that same tournament, they would switch one of the activities if not a lot of people were interested in it. Um, and I thought that was really cool because it's, it's not like girls don't all like the same thing, you know? So I think the important thing is like us bonding in that moment, not like us bonding as girls on the whole in the world, you know? 
that was really cool. Yeah, we 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 experience we have these things that weren't around when you were a kid. You would have loved them. Um, in the last like four years, we've done girls' club rooms at the national events. So we we have like yeah, it's really fun. Like simuls, special events. Like Irina Crush has come to them. Jennifer Yu, and it's also just a hangout spot. Like you can f- meet girls from other parts of the country. And there's always been this debate within like the women's committee as there are the younger girls, they really like the girly stuff, you know, the, the face painting or like the nail polish, but then the junior high and high school girls, they often give feedback that it's a little bit weird for them that there's like nail polish in the room and stuff. So it's, it's hard as retention is so important for girls and women in chess, but then also the younger girls are having such a good time. So we have to figure out how to meet in the middle there. Yeah, I think it's hard to find, especially because I think the thing that you we all have in common is chess, but it's sometimes you want to break, you know, like that's kind of what the team room is for after you like go over your games and stuff. So I don't know, maybe I don't know if this is already something that you do, but maybe it could be something like a, we used to have reading buddies in my high school. So like the older middle school students would teach the younger students that were learning how to read, how to we just read to them. Um and as I said, in my team room, it was always cool when, like, my older players or, like, more experienced players would go over my games with me. So I think, like, having that would be really cool in one of those spaces. But I do agree, like, it is hard to get something that really, like, gets to everyone, you know? Because there's so many ages. I mean, if you did that with any group of people, even if you did it with, like, a bunch of boys who played chess, it's just so hard to, like, thinking back on my team and that experience, it was so hard to get everyone interested in doing the same thing. Um, but I, I also think a lot of those girls will come back or at least in some way be retained, you know, because I think that they know that that's a place where they're supported and that's like the biggest, the biggest thing, you know, like if something were to happen to them on the board or some guy was like, Oh, you can't play chess with your girl. I feel like that would be a place that I would go and be like, Hey, this happened to me. Exactly. It's a, it's, that's what we um, created that space for. And for girls who, unlike you don't have any female friends like that could be a place for them to meet them Mm -hmm. I want to switch topics to your music but before I do that I want to give listeners a little taste to one of your most popular tracks Magic which is also available on all streaming platforms and there's a beautiful music video on YouTube Midday call say that you're running late It's fine say I'm running the same But I lied so I waited for five at the spot Right out to me like it was regular Just two dorks who can't keep to a schedule Saturday night going home with a smile in the dark Are oh sticky and you're stuck on my mind Thought somebody would be harder to find I got so messy, better hop in the tub for a wash Help you see beyond your weekdays Love's blind, but you might catch a glimpse if you watch Cause when I have you near to me, it's nothing short of 
just love that song. You mentioned that Black Joy is Radical mm-hmm. in reference to an NPR playlist by all Black artists. Mm-hmm. And I wondered how that could tie into chess. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think in t- like in terms of Black Joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think just being able to feel like you belong and being happy and not necessarily thinking about the dynamics that are working against you is a radical way to exist. And I think that that was the same as being a girl. That's the same, obviously, being a woman of color. Um, those times when I was just truly playing and being a player and being really, really good, not despite who I was, but because of who I was, um, really made me feel good, like to shine because of the empathy that I learned at a really early age, you know, and because of my intuitiveness and because of my aggression. Um, yeah, it feels good to be celebrated and it is definitely a radical act to be fighting all of these things and to just be ha- like living your best life, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that flow experience, right? It's harder for um, girls to get into the flow experience sometimes because there's this famous idea that when girls are playing, sometimes because of the way they're brought up, there's this idea that they're also seeing a picture of themselves playing. Mm -hmm. And um, while I can't relate um, directly to the experience of being a woman of color, I, it, to me, when I read that quote, I was thinking that like the flow experience must be so incredibly valuable when you're dealing with like that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think like, especially something that was really difficult growing up as a girl in chess was like being judged on what you're wearing to the tournament. It makes it so hard to like just sit there and focus. And I think that is something that my coaches saw in me early on is that I did have that ability to focus. Um, and yeah, I mean, eventually I got into the flow. I think having friends around me and having people around me that I knew were like there for my success made it so that I wasn't even thinking about those things. Um, but definitely having people around you who aren't reinforcing those stereotypes does help. <laughs> Not yeah, gonna lie. Yeah, that's. That's the thing I miss most about chess, that flow, classical chess, mm-hmm. like the flow experience, just totally losing your sense of time yeah, and getting like wrapped eight up. Eight hours in, just sitting at your board and drinking water. You don't even know where you are. <laughs> it's great. It's really cool. Yeah. Not quite eight hours, but yeah. But you know, okay, six, maybe. I don't know. I had those long games. You played games. long games. Yeah, I liked, I thought, for, I would think for a really long time. I was a thinker for sure. <laughs> time pressure addict. Are there any secret or subliminal chess messages in any of your songs? Oh my gosh, it's so funny that you asked that because I have been having such a hard time like meshing chess into my music discreetly. I think none of these songs are intentionally about chess um, on my like latest EP, Magic. Um, but I think that I find a lot of similarities between my chess career and my music career. If it's, is it cool if I talk about that real quick? Okay, we can we can get back into it, but... I think what, something you said earlier really struck a chord with me when you were saying being competitive with yourself. Um, I had someone ask me recently, a music person, like, oh, are you a competitive person? And I was, I am a competitive person, but I, I was having a hard time answering the question. And I was like, well, I think I'm competitive with myself. And that's something that I learned in chess um, alongside the value-based learning. Um, and that's, that is a big, that's a big, like, linking topic throughout my whole Magic EP, especially in um, Green Tea Ice Cream. I talk about like leaving my nine to five and what that was like and the things that I value. And I think like in anything that you, that is your passion that you also choose to make your career it is really important that your entire sense of self-worth is not wrapped up in your success in that one thing. Um, and I think again, making it your career makes that really easy um, <laughs> to slip up with. So I'm glad that I had my chess career because I do think that I kind of, 
stopped being serious about it prematurely because it did get difficult that I was applying to colleges and I was having this all of these really difficult experiences. I was also just a teenager. Um, and I really felt like I wasn't good enough. And I don't think I recognized that in myself at a young age. Um, and now with music, I'm so happy that I am making this my career. Um, I still love chess passionately. And it's just not what I chose to make my career, at least right now. Um, but I do have those days where I'm like, okay, I need a break. Or like, okay, I feel like my whole life is wrapped up in the things that I'm making. Um, and it's really nice to have had my experience in the chess world so that I know, like, okay, I just need to, like, stop for a moment. I just need to do something else that I value and also love that I'm not making my career. And it doesn't mean that I need to, like, split or it doesn't mean that I'm not good enough because today I don't feel like I'm good, you know? I think that's valuable to any, anything you do. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the scary but also amazing things about chess is how much value we put on this rating system. Yeah. As I think that's kind of beautiful, but at the same time, it's scary how emotionally devastating it can be, especially to children when they like lose rating points. Mm -hmm. And I wonder like what the corollary is that in, in music, like, is it Mm -hmm. judging yourself based on the critics or like the number of views? Like, what is that? I think it's similar. So, um, so it used to be a lot more with what critics say, but when I started, I started my music career two years ago. So I'm, pretty new I've been a musician my whole life but I'm pretty new to like having a career in music and when I started streaming was also starting up to be like the mainstream thing people were using and so it, it is similarly numbers now um there are ways that artists can see um how much they're streaming on Spotify and Apple Music and all the individual platforms um and I think those those numbers can go up and down every month drastically like by thousands especially when you're starting off kind of like playing chess when you're starting off you lose like a hundred rating points um and but then you can easily gain those hundred rating points back and so i think i don't know i think it is similarly devastating i think in it's a little bit more drawn out in music for in chess it was kind of like i mean in chess it's difficult because one devastating result can ruin the rest of your tournament as opposed to in music i feel like the the product is already out there um, so it can be devastating in the moment, but then you're just, you're marketing. It's not so much like you have to go out and write new music now when you're devastated. Um, but I think for both things, like realizing the numbers don't make you is huge. And also realizing that like at an age and at a rating where your rating is fluctuating that much, like it really does not define the kind of player you are. Um, I think at any, at any rating, like anybody can have a bad tournament and it's, it, that that's not the end of anything. And also like, you really are not, you really aren't in rating. I learned that so many times over. Yeah. It's so important, especially when you're playing somebody higher rated, <laughs> but uh, yes. I see you on like every single social media platform. And I know how much work it must be to be a musician right now, because it's like, not only do you create your work, but it seems like you have so many other things that you're doing, like marketing wise, like you're basically a small business, right? Yeah, it's hard, especially because I decided to be an independent artist. um, And that is my decision for the long haul it's looking, Um, which if you don't know, that means that I'm not going to be on a label, major label, and that if I am going to be on a label, it would be independent label. Um, But for me right now, I'm just doing everything by myself. I do have a team. So it's not that I'm doing like everything, everything, but in terms of marketing and in terms of like managing the splits for all of my things and learning learning all of the things about the industry that no one else is going to teach me except for experience. It is difficult. And I think it 
you just got to learn how to prioritize. I don't know. That's what I'm learning right now. Yeah. And a lot of chess players are learning this too, because chess is becoming more big business, more kind of like related to marketing and streaming and content and not just about like, you know, being a great player. There's obviously both sides of it, but I do feel like a lot of chess players getting into Twitch are kind of understanding that there's all these like small business things that they need to learn. Mm -hmm. And we're building all these like little chess entrepreneurs. It's kind of great because now they have like even more like life values that they can take from chess. Yeah, it's huge. And it is huge to be able to make money from chess in that way. Um, because I think that there, just like there are many ways to be a musician, there are many ways to be a chess player. And I think that was a little bit more shrouded in other, in other dynamics before the internet became a place for chess. Um, I mean, there was always the ICC and things like that when I was growing up in chess. And so I think that it was already starting with those online tournaments, but like you don't have to be the best chess player to make chess your career. And it's the same thing with music. I'm choosing to be an artist. And so obviously like I want to be the best artist that I can be. But for me, that doesn't necessarily look like numbers, even though numbers do help. Um, it's really like the quality of the people and the quality of your work. Um, and I think similarly in chess, if you are a really good chess player, there will be opportunities that just come to you because you're a good chess player. I always remind myself to focus on the music first. And if I feel like I'm lacking musically, it's going to be a lot harder for me to market myself because I don't think that I'm doing my best work. I'm sure that a lot of your viewership comes from online. You know, you've got some impressive numbers on on YouTube. But I I know that you came up as a musician in underground New York scene. So I'm wondering how you feel about the difference between performing live and creating music um, for you know online online listening or you know l- listening uh, in in a different way. Um, are you really missing the live experience? Yeah, I think I'm definitely an extrovert. So having people there to have your energy, like have your energies match, I think is really important for me because not every audience wants to listen the same way. So I think something really cool about having shows is being able to match your audience with six people who are just kind of having like a chill night. You can kind of make it, you can kind of fit it to that more acoustic vibe. Or if it's six people who want to have a party, then you can have a party with just six people. Um, but I think six people alone does not necessarily like tell you anything about what they want, even though it's, you know, so I think that makes it more difficult to perform online and also to market online. Um, because I do really like to tailor the experience. That's something that I get to do as an independent artist, but I do think it's cool to do more and more online because it's, it's more about what the artist intended. Um, so I think like when I'm alone in my room and I'm performing something or when I do like a cover with one of my friends and it's kind of like a satellite thing, um, we're really just doing it based on what we want it to sound like. And then people get to have that experience like at home. And so, um, I do think there are benefits, but I totally, totally miss performing in New York. (laughs) Well, hopefully by the time this comes out, well, You know, hopefully we'll see. soon. We'll see. Hopefully soon, we're we're gonna get yeah. back in there. And if I come to New York, I would definitely love to see you perform live. I, yes, I, absolutely. I usually come quite frequently. I I want to ask about your chess life best move. You go over a game in the Rosalimo, and you include in the notes one of my absolute favorite games to show girls clubs. And now, actually, I was on my friend Ben Johnson's podcast talking about this game as well this Judith Polgar game from the 1988 Olympiad. And 
the only reason I say it's one of my favorite games to show up for girls club is I, I'm really focusing on that right now. Like, you know, reaching out to girls and women. So it's also a really awesome game to show boys because mm-hmm. <laughs> she just wiped her opponent off the board in like 18 moves. Yes. Um, so had you seen that game like as a kid or did you kind of look it up after you played your game, which kind of embody that same slash and burn style? Okay. So as a kid, I loved Judith Polgar. Like that was like, she was like one of my um, idols, I guess my chess idols. And I think it's just because she does play aggressively. And um, my coach, John MacArthur recognized that in me really early on. And so he was kind of like, well, do you know about Judith Polgar? Do you know about the Polgar sisters? You know? Um, and so he was the one that showed me that game when we went over it together. Um, and I was like looking through my like chess, you know, database and I found a little note. Um, I don't know if the actual game was like linked in there, but there was like a little note, um, about it. So I went back and I played through it and I don't know. I think just like the way she plays is so like unapologetic, you know, like I, I think when I go over due to Colbar games, I'm kind of like, if she made a mistake, she wouldn't be upset about it. That's definitely not true, but that's how I felt watching her play. Um, and so I don't know. I think it's really, as I said so many times, and as I say in the article too, it is important to show girls that like being aggressive is not something to apologize for. Because I do remember growing up and playing chess, I used to lose on purpose when I was winning because I felt bad for my opponents because I could see them getting upset about losing to me. Um, as a young, young kid, like six, seven, eight. Um, but that's not really an experience that boys have. And I was definitely being made to feel that way. Like that kids would get a lot more upset about losing me because I was a girl. And sometimes they would say it and sometimes they wouldn't. Um, but my mom actually had to come and talk to me and say like, you know, this is a competition and it's okay to win. Um, so yeah, Judith Polgar is incredible and everybody should be learning about her. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, uh, that I did do that podcast with Ben Johnson. You can check out. It's a, yes. a about actually Judith Polgar's book series um, on that she wrote kind of recently, actually. I mean, I only wish I had that book growing up. I would have devoured it a hundred times, but um, it is out now and it's a really great series. So uh, just to, to wrap up, I do want to ask you a little bit more about your music and maybe some tips for all the chess players out there who want like the right type of chill music to listen to um, before they're studying, maybe while they're streaming. Um, There's actually been a big change in the world of streaming over the last week. As I understand, Twitch is really cracking down on copyright issues. Oh, I'm not sure you, you didn't hear about that. Um, I actually did hear about that because I had a song with another person and um, Alice Botez tried to play it on her Twitch. Um, and they didn't allow her to. They had a copyright issue because I didn't learn it entirely. Um, so I only knew about that in that one instance. But I didn't know that it was a whole, whole thing. Yeah, it's very, very big change. Like it seemed like prior people were just playing even mainstream music off of Spotify. And sometimes it would get deleted afterwards. Mm. But during it was like this kind of gray zone where basically it was more or less allowed. So all these streamers for years, they had um, all these clips of themselves playing chess and obviously other video games while listening to mainstream music. And um, Twitch had to crack down on it. I guess the regulating body, you know, was like, okay, come on, this is too much. And all the streamers had to like overnight delete all of their clips from like the last three years. 
Wow, that's so awful. Well, I I don't know. I was wondering because on one hand, it's really sad that they had to delete all their content. But then at the same time, you're like, it's probably hard to really make it as a musician. So maybe this is a way for that's true for independent musicians to monetize more. Yeah, I think I mean, I think as an independent musician in sentiment, I would never be upset with somebody using my music in this way. That's obviously personal. I think there are other people feel differently. Um, like I do have a background in chess and I think it's really cool when people use my music in streams. Um, but I do also think it's cool that there is an opportunity for like musicians and chess players and people in between to collaborate. So I would say, I'm not exactly sure how the licensing works. Um, but something that I also have known people to do is to go on Bandcamp. Um, if you guys don't know what Bandcamp is, it's um, a site where musicians can make their own site and then you can download their music from there and you can also message them from that site. No matter who they are, if they have music up there, you can message them. So I think Instagram's also just like a really easy way to get in touch with musicians. But I would just like shoot them a message, buy their music on Bandcamp and say, hey, I bought your album for like 20 bucks, whatever. Would it be okay with you if I used it in the stream? Um, and if if it needs to be a further conversation, then it can be. Um, but independent artists are, in my experience, super open to these kinds of collaborations and crossovers. Um, and a lot of them would think it's really cool. So I think obviously there is, there is something problematic about like artists not knowing that their music is being used and so not necessarily having a say in what they're, what's going on with their content and then like streamers making money from their streams. Like I do understand that there are things going on there, but I think on the whole, independent artists like myself, are psyched about being part of these things. <laughs> All right. So if somebody wants to use your music on their stream, what should they do? Yes. I'm a music on Bandcamp and then shoot me a message. Um, I'm also really receptive on my Instagram. I have a little button where you can email me. So just like click the little email button. Let me know what you're planning to do with it. We can talk about it. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I will, you will never go wrong buying an artist's music from them. That is my advice to you. <laughs> All right, that's that is some great advice. And um any recommendations for musicians that have inspired you that a lot of our listeners if they like magic, mm -hmm. green tea ice cream that they should also go check out. Yes. Okay, I love Ravina Aurora. She goes by just Ravina now, but if you google either of those, you'll find her. She's an R&B singer from New York City. Um she's really great kind of like Sade but new age. Um, I love Raven Linnae. She's also an R&B singer. I think she's really cool. Jordan Rockeye, who I did my tiny, I was a tiny desk background vocalist um, a little while ago. So if you search Jordan Rockeye on like the, the internet and my name, you'll find it. He's incredible. And his whole album origin is just like really cool to study to, to work to. Um, but yeah, I also have an artist playlist. If you go to Spotify and you search Linda Diaz, you can look at all my artist playlists. And those are the people that I'm actually listening to. So. You can check it out. That's great. You know, I was going to say Sade about like, I can't help but think of Sade when I listen to your music, but I'm not a music expert. I just listen to like Spotify and Apple Music. So I thought that that would sound like really naive, but you actually mentioned her. So now I feel vindicated. I love Sade. Yes. <laughs> it's like somebody who learns about chess and they're like, oh, you, you must know Gary Kasparov. <laughs> exactly. No, but it's, it's true. I think in the same way that every chess player has got Gary Kasparov, a lot of R&B are inspired by Sade. Um, even my like jazz boyfriends like Elijah Fox, he he um, produced my first EP. Like we were super inspired by Sade and some of it was intentional and some of it wasn't. Um, so yeah, 
No, I'm taken. I'm I'm honored that you think of her and me in the same sphere. So. Well, it's been awesome talking to you, Linda. And of course, there's lots of platforms where we can find you. It really just depends on where you, the listener, spend most of your time. She's on YouTube at Linda Diaz Music and on Instagram as well, Spotify. Um, any other places you want to direct us to? All streaming platforms like SoundCloud, Apple Music, you can find me. But definitely the big ones are going to be Instagram and YouTube at Linda Music. And then Spotify, if you follow me on Spotify, you'll get all my little updates. So like when I have new music coming out or if I have a show somewhere on the internet, um, you'll get a little email about it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Linda Diaz. Magic. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Linda Diaz. You can find her on Linda Diaz Music for spending so much time with us. A pleasure to have you on Ladies Night. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Dad. If you like what we're doing at US Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our US Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The U.S. Chess Suite of Podcasts, including Ladies' Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. Chess Podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be Ladies' Night. Now according to Sockfish I got it all wrong After slightly advantage I had nothing But my dear Capablanco You tell me We learn more from our defeats Who needs victory? Thank you.